0: Anyway, we're going to turn now to our reading for the day. It's the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and Kate's going to read to us.
1: As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? "'Yes, Lord,' they replied. "'Then he touched their eyes and said, "'According to your faith, let it be done to you,' "'and their sight was restored. "'Jesus warned them sternly, "'See that no one knows about this.' "'But they went out and spread the news "'about him all over that region. "'While they were going out, "'a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching to their synagogues to send out workers into his harvest field.
0: So we're thinking about Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 uh, to 38. But I want to begin with a story. It's a story about an atheist who was spending what could be, actually you could do now, a quiet day fishing. He was on this lake when suddenly the boat was attacked by the Loch Ness Monster. In one easy flip, the beast tossed him out of his dinghy and his boat high into the air. And it opened its mouth, this monster, to swallow both. And as the man sailed head over hills, he cried out, oh my God, help me. At once, the ferocious attack scene froze in place. As the atheist hung in midair, a booming voice came down from the clouds. I thought you didn't believe in me. And the man replied, come on, give me a break. Two minutes ago, I didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster either. And we've got this story of Jesus encountering people who didn't believe him, didn't trust him. Charles Wesley, in his classic and popular hymn, Love Divine, or Love's Excelling, speaks about the glorious truth in this passage. Jesus, thou art all compassion. We see in this story with the blind man and the mute, we see the Lord Jesus' compassionate heart, pondering the love of Christ that came to the forefront of his mind. This wasn't poetic license. Uh, Our savior has a heart of compassion. The Greek word for compassion is a magnificent word and I'm gonna try and say it to you and uh, you need to duck in case there's any spit that comes out. If we spell it out in English words, you need to get your tongue around. It's splanchismal. Something like that. And it's such an expressive word, splanchismal. For it speaks about a heart being moved. It's about one innards literally being moved, your stomach being moved. If you think about one of those rides you get on a fun fair, and your, your stomach comes up, or if you think about when you're on a jet and suddenly you suddenly drop because of an air bubble... And uh, that's what it means, your innards are churned up as you yearn for the compassion towards another person. And this is the heart of our shepherd. Jesus is bursting with compassion for others so that he gives his all to meet their needs. Blindness was a fairly common problem in the ancient Middle East in the first century and the religious leaders of, uh, of the day would associate blindness with judgment, especially if you were born blind. And they, they assumed it was the sins of the parents. But of course, Jesus proved that this was unfounded. And the gospel account reverses such notions of God's judgment. But there's another level of viewing this commentary in Matthew's Gospel, which is an overarching narrative of ancient Israel and modern society. It's the spiritual blindness that that we can have in our society. There's an Old Testament uh, prophecy some six centuries earlier in Isaiah chapter 35 and verse 10, verses 1 to 10. And I want to read that to you. As uh, just to see the unfoldingness of what Jesus is picking up here in Matthew's Gospel. Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 10. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning and will becomes a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay grass and reeds and paprias will grow and a highway will be there it will be called the way of holiness the unclean will not journey on it it will be for those who walk in that way wicked fools will not go about on it no lion will be there nor will any ferocious beast get up on it They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Wonderful vision of the kingdom of heaven. Let me turn you to another passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, and we're going to go to verses 39 to 41 and see what our Lord says here. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind." Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and said, What, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Three things I observe about this passage. And the first is the cry for mercy. This reminds me of a joke about a lady who had her photograph taken and upon seeing the proof complained to the photographer. He said, ma'am, what's wrong? Wrong? Why, this picture doesn't do me justice, she says. To which he looked at her and said, ma'am, you don't need justice, you need mercy. Forgive me for that. They called out to Jesus in loud voices, Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. Verse 27, Have mercy on us. Being merciful is a disposition to show kindness or compassion. The Greek word for mercy is eleos. It's used in relation to misery and and relief. Grace is God's free gift displayed in the forgiveness of sins. Grace is extended to people who are guilty. Mercy is extended to them even though they're miserable. And in first century Roman culture, mercy was not seen as a virtue for us to aspire to. It was seen as a sign of weakness. One Roman philosopher called mercy a disease of the soul. To them, mercy was a sign that you do not have what it takes to be a real man, and especially a real Roman. Jesus showed mercy everywhere he went. His motivation came from the desire to please his heavenly Father, and from that flowed the very deep love of mercy. God was often referred to as full of mercy, Holy is the Lord, his mercy endures forever, says the psalmist. So when we come to the Lord, you're not coming to somebody who is sitting with a baseball bat, ready to hit you on every false move. The Bible teaches that God's essential character is mercy. Mercy holds back from us what we really deserve, whilst grace gives us what we do not deserve. How wonderful to know that it involves his person, Jesus. This is what the character of the Lord is like. He's so attractive as a man, as the Son of God. There's never a moment when you come to the Lord that he stops being merciful. And so the blind man and the mute, they cry out for mercy. Secondly, note who they are cry to and what they call him who is the son of David have mercy on us son of David Matthew writes to the Jewish people and traces Jesus back to the father of the Jews Abraham David of course was the pinnacle of the king of kings and so in his rule Jesus will be like David loving God ruling fairly but firmly And pointing everyone to God, to Yahweh. Verse 35, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. This was saying something about the nature of Jesus. It takes the meek, the lowly, the marginalized to actually recognize the kingship of Jesus. The high and mighty didn't recognize him, questioned him. The title, the Son of David, refers to the authority of Jesus as the heir to the throne of an everlasting kingdom. It took these two people who could not see physically what those who could see failed to understand. And we have it today that people say if Jesus' power was demonstrated in miracles in Eld Lane on the precinct outside the church here, I would believe. But but people still didn't believe when Jesus healed the blind and the deaf of his time. The son of David seeks to do the will of the Father, to bring glory to God the Father. This is the king, the blind and the mute, recognised. St John calls him the word and the light. We began our service with being reminded that he is the light of the world. When Jesus died, he died as an atonement for our sins. When he rose, he did so to defeat the power and curse of death and hell. Friends, do you believe him? Today is the day of salvation. And that leads me to the third and final point. Do you believe? And this is the question that Jesus raised to those who were calling out for mercy. In verse 28, do you believe... Do you believe I'm able to do this? It's only as we come humbly to God. We sung about bowing our knees in the first hymn, Let Us Sing to the God of Salvation. We need to bow the knee in humility. The posture for faith is not strident, but it's humble, it's meekness. We need to understand who we are and who God is. And can we truly fathom God in his greatness? Our tiny minds cannot compute this. You see, today, there are people who ask the wrong questions about God and the meaning of life. And if you ask the wrong questions, you never get the right answers. Why am I a Christian? Why in my late teens did I change the trajectory of my life? Because Christianity is true. Here's a good question to ask. Has God revealed himself? Has God spoken? Well, the Bible, we have an account of how God has revealed himself. God spoke in creation. There is enough in creation, in the beauty of creation, for us to encounter a creator. But most people who like creation actually aren't interested in a creator. God has spoken through history, but God's greatest revelation of himself for all cultures, for all times, is in the person of Jesus Christ. So here's a good question. How do we know Jesus was the one? Well, there are 322 prophecies that tell you where he's going to be born, how he's going to be born, how he's going to grow up, how he's going to say and what he's going, how he's going to die. You've not even got the number of coins You've actually got the number of coins that will be used to betray him. And 322 prophecies being fulfilled in one person at one moment in time. The odds on that, and we may have some mathematicians in the audience, is 84 with 100 zeros. The likelihood... And the chances of that happening so the prophetic fulfillment speaks a truth in other words it doesn't happen every day well in the 19th century there was a very famous atheist in america called ingersoll he didn't like christianity he didn't like the fact the church was growing he had a great friend who was a very famous general called general Excuse me. General Lou Wallace. And he said to his friend, Lou, you've got to help me out. Let's damage Christianity. Let's damage the church. Why don't you write a book to disprove the resurrection? So Lou Wallace began to write his book. Lou Wallace actually had a wife who was a Christian. So she was praying while he was writing a book to disprove Christianity. He got to chapter 4, and guess who he met? He encountered the risen Christ for himself. And so he wrote a book, a book that became one of the biggest selling books in the world at the time, a book that became the biggest grossing movie of its time. His book was called Ben-Hur, And you may remember Charlton Heston played Ben-Hur. It was about a Roman um, slave who becomes a charioteer. And it's about the story, the tales of Christ. The deaf and the blind were remarkably healed. We saw the authority of Christ in this. He drove out the demon from the demon-possessed. Do you believe in what I can do for you? Jesus asked them. And their response was, yes, Lord. But friends, we know in the mysteries of Christ, sometimes we don't get all that we want and all that we pray for. And I want to encourage you to have a faith, not just like the blind or the deaf or the demon-possessed, but I want you had a faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the great prophet of Daniel. In Jan- Daniel chapter 3 and verse 17 and 18, King Nebuchadnezzar was about to throw them into the fiery furnace. And this is what Daniel said. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But this is the kind of faith I want, and I hope you want. But even if he does not save us, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Friends, we need a faith that believes in miracles, but also a faith that believes even if not, we will trust him, we will have faith in him, that there is a greater and more ultimate purpose to our lives. And so this brings me to my conclusion about the harvest is great, but the workers are few about making our lives count. It's wonderful to see people step up through the church in this time, to step into new ways of connecting and communicating, of reaching out to neighbours, perhaps who they've not talked to for a long time because culturally that's not always easy. We're in a season of preparation in 2020. God is shaping us, preparing workers for a spiritual harvest across this land that will flow out of coronavirus. And so the question I want to put to you, are you preparing your hearts? Are you preparing for what God has in store for you, what he wants to do through you? And if not, this is the time to lay our hearts before God. It's time to pray for our young people, it's time to pray for our children, it's time to pray for our adults, that we're a season of preparation before the first fruits that will come. I want to close with this true story. In the Olympic Games, the original ancient Greek games, the greatest event was a race up and down mountains. Speed wasn't the most important issue because the runners ran the race with a flaming torch. The winner was not necessarily the first person to reach the finishing line. It was the person who crossed the line with the flame still burning. What's the moral of this? We need to run the race in such a way that we don't put out the flame. We might be later in crossing the line... Not only because we are protecting our own flame, but also because we are lighting the torches of others whose flames have gone out. Winning is about finishing well, not finishing first. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your gospel accounts, for your heart of compassion. Thank you that you're a God of mercy and grace. Thank you that you're a God of authority. You are in the kingly line of David. You have authority from above, and we walk in that authority. And we will walk ahead this week knowing that the son of David, the king above, is our Lord. As we think about the week to come, as we think of Ian and Susan moving to rugby, we thank you that you go as their king, as their Lord. We thank you for in all the meetings and encounters that the rest of us will have, you go before us, God. We can trust you and we will believe you. We will believe you whether things work out well or whether our purpose is beyond that, beyond our understanding. We will trust you, Lord, because you are good, you are loving. You are eternal. Lord, inspire us in these days and prepare our hearts, prepare this church to serve post-COVID, that there will be a harvest, a harvest of transformation, of goodness, of pain that is healed and restored, of lives that are broken, that are mended. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.